I'm glad you're here today. You know, uh, Jesus is not only our Lord and our God, but he's our friend. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And whenever you need someone to talk to, whenever you need someone as a companion, just look to him. He's always there, right by your side. Father, I thank you for the gathering this morning, and I pray that you would bless everything that we look at, everything we talk about, that it would help people draw closer to you, and that we might be your witnesses in these last days. And so anoint and use me, Lord, to speak your truth to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And I want to mention, some of you probably have already seen, but the Kirkville Road Bridge is going to be closed uh, Monday. You know, uh, the Manoa, you, uh, you go by Manoa, and then there's that little bridge in between Manoa and where you turn, uh, where, what is that, 298, where you turn towards the church? That bridge is closed. So all you have to do is, in Manoa, where that gas station is, you turn left and go over, make the first right, and it brings you right back out on the 298, like right around the corner from the church. So just warn you about that so you don't get there and say, oh, I've got to turn around and all that kind of stuff. Also, um, sorry about last Wednesday. Apparently, some people thought last Wednesday was church, you know, our Bible study, and it wasn't. And it's been very confusing because since this whole COVID thing started, we started having Wednesday night every other week. And it's made, it's been a lot of confusion because if there's a Wednesday, we're supposed to have it, and I was sick, and we didn't have it, so we'd have it the next week, and then the weeks, you know, it was crazy. So we are going to resolve it in a very simple way. We're going back to having Wednesday every week. So now you don't have to be wondering, is this the week we have Wednesday service? Because the answer will always be yes, this is the week. And um, so I just wanted to make you aware of that. And if you'd open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5, and this is really, a, a, I think, a very unique portion uh, where they're crossing over and getting ready uh, to take over the promised land that God had given to them. And it reminds me of the fact that um, that's where our world is today. I mean, we're at a time that we're, as a church, ready to cross over. Only instead of a river and into a, into a promised land, we're ready to cross over the valley of death into the promised land or the rapture of the church. I believe that the time for Jesus to come for his church is closer now than it's ever been. And we'll later talk about some reasons why. But let's look at Joshua chapter 5, verse 1 first. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until it had crossed over, that their hearts melted, and that's in fear, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. You see, seeing the supernatural work of God should cause any heart to melt in fear. And not fear in the sense of, oh, he's going to get me. Fear in reverence and awe of who God is. I mean, he's God. He's able to forgive all sin. And if you reject that, he's able to condemn you to hell. I mean, he is someone. Fear the Lord your God. You know, we have to understand that is an important aspect of our relationship with him. Because think about it. Here, these people who occupied the present land that the children of Israel were going to come in and take over, they watched 
the Jordan River heap up. Out of sight, the heap would be so high as they all crossed over, probably three million of them, in absolute peace. And then the minute the priest carrying the uh, Ark of the Covenant, the last one foot touched dry, dry ground, the waters came back together. Well, if you were the enemies on the other side of the Jordan, you'd be thinking, oh boy. <laughs> because you know you're not just fighting against the people, you're fighting against the Lord God. And so the Canaanites were probably ready to surrender even before the battle began. And uh, in Romans 8.31 it says, What then shall we say to these things? Listen to this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you know that still rings true today? If God is for us, who can be against us? What is God calling you to do? I mean, what he's calling you to do might not be something that I'm aware of or something I'm called to do, but whatever God is calling you to do, he is able to accomplish it in you. If God is for you, no one can stand against you. And we have to have that confidence in the Lord. You know, Satan has strongholds in our lives that God desires to defeat. That he wants the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to enter in and to take over and to have the victory. You know, one of the things that we always have to remember, and it's important to remember this, is that we're three-part beings, body, soul, and spirit. And if we were just a body, like so many people say, oh, we're just a body, you live and then you die, then everything in us, even our nature, our intelligence, whatever it might be, would be controlled by DNA. We would be prisoners of our DNA. But that's not the case. There is something in us that's intrinsic, something that we can't visibly see. That is who we are. It's our personality. You know, it's, it's our desire. It's our passions. That's who we are. And that's our soul. And that self-identity will never leave us, even when we're in heaven or hell, if someone re refuses to accept Jesus Christ. But it's that self-identity that kind of pushes us to do things maybe that we normally wouldn't, to go beyond what we're capable of because we have that desire in our heart of who we are. But here's the thing, and this is something that we have to remember. Our soul never ages. Our body does. I look in the mirror. In fact, I, I, I was telling my wife, I think the worst invention, I think it was actually someone with a cruel spirit that did it, was to put a mirror over the sink so that when you step out of the tub, that's the first thing you see. And you think, <laughs> what's happened here? I remember the Wizard of Oz. I'm melting, you know. And, uh, but my body is aging. I'm very aware of that. But even though my age might be 76, my soul is as young as, as it has ever been. That is who I am, my personality. But there's another part of us that until we're born again lies dormant or dead. And that's the spirit. His spirit, it says, quickens. And that is a word that means make alive, makes alive our spirit. So when we are before the Lord in our soul, in, our, in who we are, our personality, our self-identity, and we say, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that I'm not all that I think that I have thought I was. I thought I was great, but I realized I'm a sinner, Lord, and I need you to forgive me my sin and, and to make me alive in you. And he does. Though we were dead in transgression and sins, he makes us alive by the Spirit. And so now, as believers, we're alive. We're alive because we have 
hope and promises that are beyond what this life can imagine. We have lands of Cana that we're able to take over now by the Spirit of the living God. You know, and also even this fear for us, the gift of fear of the Lord, boy, it gives us a greater sense of his greatness, doesn't it? I mean, people who don't fear the Lord, say, oh, yeah, God, yeah, all the man upstairs. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, he's God. And you better have a reverent fear of him because he's the creator of all things and he's able in one breath to destroy all things. And his wrath is ready to fall down on this earth. We better have a fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. Why is it the beginning of wisdom? Because all of a sudden you realize you're not God. You're not the one who really has control of your life. It's the Lord who does. You know, um, in Proverbs 1.7 it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Listen to this. But the fool despises wisdom and instruction. So in other words, if I look at this word, and I have the fear of the Lord in my heart, and I know this is the word of God, and I'm not going to spend time, but I could prove to you every way but Sunday, and even Sunday, that this is the word of God to man. And so when I look at the word of God, anyone who has the fear of the Lord, there's a reverence, and you realize this is all true. And so that is the beginning of wisdom. And therefore, I desire to know what God's will is for my life and what God's will is for the church. And it's found right here in the Word of God. Now let's move down to chapter 5, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Not that they're being circumcised twice. And we're going to find out what this means when it says uh, circumcise them a second time. So Joshua made flint knives, flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. Now, uh, Joshua personally didn't circumcise them all. There would have been hundreds of thousands of men that would have needed to have been circumcised. He didn't do it personally. He was the one who gave the order. He kind of over, oversaw it. And, uh, and Gilbroth, Heveroth, is, you know, it talks about the hill of the foreskins, and it literally means the hill of the cutting. So, I don't know what it looked like. I really don't even want to imagine it, but apparently there was a hill of foreskins. In verse 4, and uh, this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them, all the people who came out of Egypt who were males, uh, all the men of war who died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that uh, he would uh, not show them the land, that he would uh, not show them the land which the Lord had swore, uh, sworn to their fathers, and that he would uh, give us the land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, most of you remember the 12 spies that were sent in, and um, they were to go in and spy out the land. And remember, God promised them that land. If they would have gone in, they would have taken the land then. Understand that. God had given them that promise. And if God be for us, who can be against us? 
But 10 of the spies went in, and they saw how difficult the situation was. They saw the giants that were in the land. And they came back, 10 of the spies came back and dissuaded all the people of Israel, all the men, of, all the fighting men from going in. There were only two, Caleb and Joshua, who said, hey, they're meat for us. We can go in and take this land. God has given it to us. But because the majority persuaded the people not to go in, God was angry with them because they feared men more than they did God. And so consequently, God said, all of you men who were of fighting age, in other words, when that happened, the men who were 20 years of age and older, he said, you won't enter in because of your unbelief and fear, but your children will. And see, that's where we are now. That's what's being talked about here. And then Joshua circumcised the sons of those, um, uh, those whom he raised up in their place. In other words, he didn't raise them personally, but those, the children of those who were uh, unbelievers. And they were circumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Now, it's amazing when you think about it. I mean, not only had they crossed the Jordan River, but they knew that they were going to be facing severe opposition, which they did. You know, with all the Canaanites and, and there's, you know, just so many people that, that were coming against them. And yet, in the midst of all that, they were willing to be circumcised. And that took quite a step of faith. And uh, because they needed to be identified as God's chosen people. And they were to be separated by circumcision. Now, understand, it wasn't the circumcision itself that identified them with God. It was the obedience. It was the cutting away of the flesh. It was an analogy of what was going to happen later when people were saved and were born again. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And um, so here they come across. And these, you know, some of these guys are probably 39, 38 years old. And they're willing to be circumcised at that age. Now... Under the new covenant, the Gentiles, of course, you and I, we don't need to be circumcised. I mean, many of us are for different reasons. But in, in Acts uh, chapter 15, <clears throat> if you read verses 28 through 29, and it's called the Council of Jerusalem, and they came in, and the big question was, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to become believers? And, of course, uh, the Gentiles weren't really crazy about the idea and uh, so they had a whole council, and they determined a lot of things. And in, in uh, verse 29 of chapter 15, it says uh, that you've... He's saying, you know, the, the Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised, but this you have to do, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. And that's Acts 15, verse 29. Now, we not, might not, you and I might not be commanded to be circumcised of the flesh, but all of us, men and women, are called to be circumcised of the heart, the cutting away of the flesh, the heart, the cardiac, the inner man. Okay? You are a soul, an inner man. You, you, and, and there is flesh in there. And when we talk about the flesh, we don't literally mean epidermis and subcontinent. What we're talking about when we talk about the flesh is just our desires for this world, our basic, sometimes base human desires that we have. And we need to be circumcised of that. It needs to be cut away 
that we might be able to worship the Lord without all the distractions of the flesh and without all the distractions of the world. Because it's hard to worship God and be dabbling in, in unrepentant sin. It's very difficult to do. God's not going to use you as a servant because your very sin might be the, be the thing that would put people uh, at a place where they would consider Christianity just a fraud. And so that's why we're to be circumcised of heart. And um, in Romans 2 and verse 26, it says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be accounted as circumcision? So it's making it very clear that under this new covenant, circumcision is of the heart. And it's for men and women that we might be able to put off the things of the flesh and seek after only the things of God. And um, to enter in, they had to fulfill the covenant that God made for his people. And for you and I to enter in, we have to fulfill the covenant as well. And the covenant that we have is so simple. Anyone, you know who's included in anyone? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a beautiful promise that is. I don't have to look at someone and say, well, I wonder if they can be saved. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so it gives us a willingness to go out and share our faith with anyone. And so that is the responsibility that we have, that we might enter in. And um, just like the children of Israel desire to enter into the promised land and to have victory over it, you and I have a promised land. We have a promise that God has given us. It's called heaven. And whether it be by the rapture or by death, we're going to end up there as believers, all of us, every one of us. And when we end up in heaven, it's going to be heaven. <laughs> you know why it's going to be heaven? Because Jesus Christ is there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is there. And because we'll be there. And, and the brothers and sisters that we worship with all our lives will be there. And all the saints of old will be there. The great multitude of angels will be there. It's going to be the most... Uh, if you try to explain what heaven would be like, it would be a joke because you can't. You read in Revelation just a tiny bit of the description of heaven, and it's beyond our ability even to understand. You know, some people say, wouldn't that be kind of boring just to stand around and worship God all day? Uh, nope. It sure wouldn't. Because there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more sorrow, and all the former things will have passed away. How many things are there in our life to bring regret? They'll all be gone. They'll be taken from us as far as the east is from the west. It's such a beautiful promise that the Lord has given us. It's absolutely you know, amazing, and I can't wait for that day. In Colossians chapter 2, why don't you turn there, Colossians chapter 2, and I'm going to start with verse 11. Colossians chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 2. And don't forget, to enter his promised land, we have to be circumcised of heart, cutting away the flesh. In Colossians, chapter 2, starting with verse 11, in him you are also circumcised with the circ circumcision made without hands. That's what we're talking about by putting off the body of sin, sins of the flesh, and by the circumcision of Christ, 
buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Verse 13. And you being dead in your, tresp- in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Think about that. You're alive with Christ. That means you never die. He forgives all your trespasses, all of them. There are trespasses that you have in your heart and your mind no one else knows about. And it doesn't make any difference. In fact, it's probably good that they don't know about it. But God does. And if you've confessed and repented it to the Lord, you're forgiven and washed clean. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it um, out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He was nailed to the cross for all of our sins. Having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing uh, over them in it. Satan is petrified of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is Lord of all, and Satan has no power over him. And Satan knows, in fact, there are verses of Scripture that talk about the fact Satan knows his time is short, and that's why he's acting actively the way he is. But know this, because there are people out there that teach contrary to the Word of God. You, as a believer, cannot be possessed by a demon or overtaken by Satan. You cannot be because greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world. And that's important to know. It doesn't mean we can't be oppressed. Have you ever had a lot of things happening all at once and you think, wow, you know, I, I know this is not normal. You know, we can be oppressed, but we cannot be defeated in Jesus Christ. We need to keep our focus and our eye on him. Okay, in verses 8 through 12 of Joshua chapter 5, so it was when, it, when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their place in the camp till they were healed, which is usually somewhere between 14 to 18 days, sometimes longer. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called uh, Gilgal to this day. And um, the word Gilgal means to roll back, to roll back the, the sins of Egypt. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal, and they kept the Passover in the 14th day of the month at twilight, on the plains of Jericho. And they were obeying what God had given them as a perpetual celebration of what he had done for them and releasing them from bondage. And every day, you and I should celebrate the fact that he's released us from bondage. Every day you should wake up and say, praise God. Praise God, I'm free. Praise God, I'm set free. Verse 11. And they ate of the produce of the land in the day after the Passover, unleavened bread, and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day that they had eaten the produce of the land. So all the while they were wandering in the wilderness, God provided manna. And you know what manna means? What is it? Because they didn't know what it was. It was like cornered bread, but yet it was sweet and had every nutrient the body needed. And that's what they survived on, you know, wandering in the wilderness. But now God has given them the promise They no no longer needed the manna. Now he gave them the land that they can produce their own food. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but uh, they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. It's interesting 
And it says, the circumcision of the sons rolled back the reproach of Egypt. What does that mean? They left Egypt believing God was going to, you know, provide for them and release them from bondage of slavery. But when they crossed over into the wilderness, they were expecting everything to be perfect. And because it wasn't, and because there was a battle. T- now, it wasn't very long after they crossed the Red Sea, understand, before they first went in to the land of Canaan. They, it could have been just a short journey, and they would have been in the promised land. But when they sent the spies over, their hearts melted in fear. And so they never entered into what God had promised. And we have to make sure that doesn't happen to us. Because even as believers, there are places that God wants us to enter into, that he's promised to us, you know, a peace you know, a, a confidence, an assurance of heart. Not only for ourselves, but for those that we love, especially those that are believers. And so we need to enter into that land. And there are many giants that we'll face. You all know that. There are many giants that we face entering into that land. Difficulties, disappointments, discouragements, betrayals, and all kinds of things. But the fact is, we have to remember that this world you know, is under the sway of the wicked one. And until people are saved, they're open to be used of Satan in many, many ways. And even believers, even those you love, can disappoint you. And can, but you can't allow that to discourage you. We need to walk right into that land that God has promised us and occupy it and live in it and rejoice in it. You know, there's an old song that... If Nick and Annette were here, probably would be the only ones that would remember it. But it was uh, on the, the Hit Parade. Anyone? Re- no, I know none of you here remember the Hit Parade. It was one of the oldest TV shows, a little 15-inch, 12-inch black and white TV. Anyway, one of the songs was, um, I don't have a barrel of money. I might be ragged and funny, but I travel along singing a song. We, we travel along singing a song side by side. And I always think about that. I might not have a barrel of money. I might be ragged and hopefully sometimes funny. But I travel along with the Lord. He and I, side by side. And we have a song together. It's a song of salvation and redemption. That's the greatest joy that any of us should have. And so no matter what's going on in this world, we have a joy in Him. If money were the source of happiness, then... Remember the, the Mamas and Papas song or Peter, Paul, and Mary song, then the rich would live and the poor would die? If that were the case, then all wealthy people would be the happiest people in the world. And all the poor people would be the saddest people in the world. But I find that oftentimes it's just the opposite. Sometimes the very wealthy people are the saddest people, and sometimes the people that have very little you know, are the happiest people. We were talking about this a little bit last night, and I won't mention the name, but when I was a, a principal of the high school in, in Puerto Rico, and, and actually at one point for a short time, um, I was made district, the superintendent for all the American schools there. And we were invited to a, um, a, a dinner party at, I won't give the guy's name, he was the wealthiest man in Puerto Rico. And he owned like two miles or some crazy thing of uh, oceanfront, you know, where they brought all the produce in, you know, dockings and all that stuff. The guy was loaded. And uh, his son and daughter went to the school that I was initially principal of, and um, 
So we're there, and I'm thinking, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder if he's going to fire me. I don't know. What, what's going on here? Because he was the chairman, uh, obviously, of the board. And so we were there, and we were having a good time, and then he called me into his office. I'm not exaggerating when I say his office in his home was probably almost as big as this auditorium. And uh, he said, Frank, sit down. You know, so I, I sat down. And um, he said, you're one of those uh, born-agains, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, I just want to tell you, I'm unhappy all the time. He said, I'm unhappy every day. And I had a chance to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him, and he did come to church a few times. I don't know whatever happened beyond that. But the point I'm making, money cannot buy you happiness. Salvation will give you joy beyond compare. Will give you peace that surpasses all understanding. You know, we say that, do we realize what that means? It's you're, The peace you have is so amazing, you can't even understand it. Why am I at peace? All these crazy things are going on. Why am I at peace? Because of the Lord. Now, being at peace with God doesn't mean that you don't have struggles and difficulties you're dealing with. You know, I know Pastor Frank Jr. is absolutely at peace with God. But then last week when his cellar flooded, <laughs> his sump pump broke, and uh, he and all the, all the, the many siblings and, and nephews, uh, nephew were down there bailing buckets of water out, but he had peace because a difficulty doesn't take away from the fact that we belong to God. And all things work for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That's the promise of Almighty God. It's amazing. And, um, you know, it's the protective will of God and his um, saving power and his purpose for our lives that should give us the confidence that we need in order to, to just operate in this world. This world's crazy, and we'll be talking about that you know, in a little bit. But um, this world is going crazy. You know, I don't know if you're aware of it. And um, that's the, the reason it's more important than ever that we all, men and women, we're talking about circumcision of the heart, need to be circumcised. And it's, it's interesting because physical circumcision is only one time. The circumcision of the heart can be many times. There's often times that we need to have a carving away of, of the fat of sin that needs to go. And God is so good that our confession and repentance brings the, the sharp scalpel of God's love in order to cut away all the sin that's so easily, you know, entangling us. And... Um, Think about the faith it would have had to, uh, had to have taken because you had the whole army of Israel, when they were circumcised, were incapacitated for at least two weeks. If they were attacked during that time, they would have been wiped out. But they never feared that, and they were never attacked. You know why? Because it was God's will. And if God be for you, who can be against you? Now, finishing up with verses 13 and 14, and it came to pass when Joshua uh, <coughs> was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and he said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So in other words, he's saying, Are you for us or against us? 
An interesting answer, verse 14. So he, notice that's a capital H, said, no. I mean, can you imagine if uh, you went to someone and said, I just want to ask you one question. Are you for, for us or against us? And they just say, no. It doesn't seem to be an answer, but I'll share with you the, me the meaning of it in a moment. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he worshiped. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot. And it's interesting because it's singular, sandal. And I, I won't get into it right now, but um, there is a situation if someone, ref anyway, if someone refuses to marry a near kin um, because their husband died, then the woman could take one of the sandals off the person's feet, slap him in the face with it, and they would from then on be called the person of one sandal. I don't know if that is the reason, but it's interesting that it is singular when it says take the sandal off your foot. Because <clears throat> sandal singular, foot singular. For the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. And the commander of the Lord's army, you have to understand, was no other than Jesus Christ. Anytime a person tried to bow down to an angel, what did the angel always say? Get up. I'm just one of, uh, you know, servant as you are. But in this case, this commander of the Lord's army didn't say get up because it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he said no, what does that mean? Are you for us or against us? No. The Lord isn't for or against any political position. He's not for or against, you know, any particular group of people. The Lord is for righteousness. He is seeking people to follow him because the sword of righteousness we have to understand cuts both ways. It cuts away the sin of our flesh, but it also cuts down the enemies of God who refuse. And he is the one who says, no, I'm just for those who follow God. That's who I'm for. In Ephesians 6, 17, it says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then in Revelation 2.16, it says, Repent, or else I will, come, uh, I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword. And so we have to realize the greatest weapon we have in fighting the enemies of this world and fighting those who disbelieve the Word of God is the Word of God. Well, is the Word of God. I just choked, sorry. Is the Word of God. All of my opinions and all of my examples and analogies that I give can't even compare to the Word of God. And that's the best answer we can have for anyone. <clears throat> you know, in Ephesians 6, 17, it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Listen, which is the Word of God? It's the best weapon we have is the Word of God. You know, you don't want to go around and be okay, come on. No, no, you share the Word of God with them. In Revelation 2.16, it says, Repent, or else I will come quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The word of God. The sword of spirit is the word of God, and it can be used uh, by believers to either declare righteousness and also by the sword of his mouth, which can cut away our sin. So we can use the sword of the spirit to stand on the word of God. 
but also the sword of, God, of the Spirit, the sword of God can come in and, and cut away the flesh of our heart when we confess and repent and say, God, forgive me a sinner, and he does. Now, the patience of the Lord is not a sign of weakness, okay? I mean, he was so patient with the children of Israel, they roamed for 40 years. And we think of what's going on in the world now. We say, God, why aren't you doing something? His patience, understand, is out of love, is out of a desire for anyone who has an opportunity, everyone has an opportunity to be saved. There are things going on in the world today that are absolutely insane. I don't know how many of you saw the article or read it, but in Canada, they're burning down churches. They're burning them down, and they're being hailed for it. The government is doing nothing. We know nothing about it because our news media doesn't cover it. Just go online, look at under Fox News, and you find that they're being burned down. And uh, the, the Trudeau of Canada is doing nothing about it, almost hailing it as a good thing. The reality is we're at that place. We're at that place in history. There's never been a time in history where the Lord is ready to pour out his wrath in the world. And the one thing that we know from the word of God is that before God pours his wrath out in the world, he's taking us to be with him in what we call the rapture. You know, the patience of the Lord, like I said, is not a sign of weakness. In 2 Peter 3.9 it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He's patient, waiting for all to come to repentance. But that day is coming when it's done. And it's time for God to make his move, to make his decision, to defeat Satan, and to pour out his wrath on this unbelieving, ungodly world. But one of the things I always try to remind people of, even though God's wrath is going to be poured out in this world in such a horrific way, read the book of Revelation, even though that's going to happen, many will be saved during that time period. I believe it will be the greatest revival the world has ever seen. So many Christians will be in the world that Antichrist is going to come up with a numbering system so he knows those who aren't following him and he might put them to death. It's absolutely amazing. And so we have to realize we're coming to that time when the Lord is going to be lifting us up out of this world. In 1 Peter 4.13 it says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, what does it mean it will begin with the house of God? Well, read the churches. Some churches were fully given to the Lord. Some churches were half-hearted. Some churches had, very, only had a few people in it that were saved, but the rest of them didn't follow the Lord at all. I mean, you have churches in our community that would consider themselves born-again churches that do same-sex marriage. Well, that's a sin. Understand, sin is sin. If a gay couple came in here, I wouldn't be going... If a gay couple came in here, you know what I would do? I would welcome them, and I would love them. And I would pray for opportunity to share the truth, and I would believe that Jesus Christ would save their souls, and they would turn from their sin. 
But you have churches now that are just starting to accept anything. So no wonder it begins in the house of the Lord. In Revelation uh, chapter 14 and verses 19 through 20, So the angel thrust in the sickle into the earth, and he gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle. That's talking about the end of the tribulation when God is just finished with his dealing with man. As many as would be saved would be saved. The earth had reaped full corruption, had become ripe with corruption, and he thrust in his sickle, and judgment comes. And they'll all be removed. All those who have taken the mark of the beast, all those who follow Satan will be removed. And all those who didn't do that will be with the Lord. And you and I will escape all of that if we're born again because we will be with the Lord in his promised land. But the fact is, his coming could be at any moment. My last question to each one of you is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? You don't have to obtain any certain class or, or, or height of righteousness. You just have to be humble in your heart Forgive me, God, a sinner. If the rapture came right now, are you ready? The only one who can answer that question is you. Because it's not a matter of uh, all kinds of legalistic works that you do or don't do. It's a matter of your love for God and your love for his church. He's coming. And he's coming soon, my friends. Father, I thank you so much for the promises you've given us in your word and and that blessed hope, that glorious appearing that we long for. And I pray, Lord, that you would come quickly, that you might be able to bring judgment in this world and then restore it back to what it was intended to be. And I thank you, Father, for your word. It is truly the sword of the Spirit. And may it speak to our hearts, and may it cut both ways, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you, my friends.